Coney Island has a long and storied history, and while its heyday may be long gone, the seaside area is still known as a place for fun and excitement, as well as a good hot dog. Photographer Larry Rassiopo has captured images of Coney Island during some of its darkest and brightest days. His new book, Coney Island Baby, includes photographs depicting Coney Island in the late 1970s, when a series of fires devastated its amusement area. But it also shows happier times, including images of the early days of the famed Mermaid Parade, one of the events that helped to usher in a new era on Coney Island. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Larry Rassiopo is our guest on this week's Cityscape, along with writer, historian, and journalist Kevin Baker and Dick Ziggin, founder of Coney Island USA. Both Dick and Kevin contributed essays to Larry's book. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Dick, good to see you. Happy to be here. And Larry, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Delighted to be here. So this is a great new book, Larry, Coney Island Baby, you know, taking us back to Coney Island in the 70s and then, of course, uh, beyond the 70s. But what a different time period the 70s was on Coney Island, huh, Larry? A different time period everywhere. There's mm. this incredible interest in the art world in New York City between 75 and 82. People keep publishing book after book after book. It's a fertile time period. It's that, you know, CBGB's downtown, the clubs. It's just Basquiat. It's like it's people are just fascinated by it. I think it's going to change to the next decade, but for the present time, there's several more books coming out. Just one after the other about 70s, late 70s, the city. Dick, take us back to Coney Island in the 70s. What was it like? It was the most difficult time in Coney Island's history. And because there's really naked, raw issues of violence and fires and greed and uh, property values, um, a lot of people have shied away. Uh, Charlie Denson's wonderful history, Coney Island Lost and Found, was the first, but uh, there haven't been many attempts. So visually, um, this is like so important because it's without the Larry's photographs, it's hard to convey to people just how bizarre it was. Um, It was totally decayed. It was burning down in sections, and yet it was constantly open for business, and millions of people uh, were bringing their kids or themselves or their dates to this strange neighborhood. Now, this decay was a result of the city's economic downturn at the time, right? Well, that, but also that uh, the owners of Coney Island had gambled on casinos coming to Coney Island right after they had just been approved in Atlantic City. People stopped maintaining their businesses um, and not reinvest in terms of maintenance of buildings or rides. Uh, Rides got more run down. People got hurt. Um, The workers on the rides were often gang members. It's bizarre to think that that ever happened. We were also seeing a lot of arson at that time, right? Well, Larry, I mean, your book is full of uh, photos of things that were burnt. Yeah, I was, I was just, can I jump in? I was was just amazed how much it declined. You know, I went to California. I mean, I I was in California. I came back, went to Coney Island. It was one of the first places I went to photograph. 
you know, I had such fond memories of it going there when I was younger, you know, going on the rides, going swimming. And I was always, I was haunted by under the boardwalk. I was intimidated. I was, when I was younger, I wasn't a photographer. I would have loved to have photographs there in the late 60s, early 70s. And people there with their blankets, doing drugs, having sex. I was fascinated by that. It was cool. It was dark. And then when I started photographing, when I came back in 71, it was like empty. And then I was also struck by the racist and uh, the Nazi and the white power graffiti. That was like kind of a surprise. And that was, yeah, that played a key role too, right? Isn't that why Tilly's, I guess it was Tilly's daughter, or grand, no, daughter, I think, sold, uh, sold off um, uh, Steeplechase to, uh, to the wonderful Fred Christ Trump. Um, <laughs> <laughs> father of Rather somebody then you know. integrate the swimming pool yeah she you know so. they were still making money supposedly and she just got rid of this you know wonderful park and uh you know fred trump through this he was afraid it would be landmark because the landmarks were just coming in landmark preservation was just coming in so he had a big party and hired various models and all to hand out bricks to people and they threw them through this amazing painted trellis that had uh, covered um, covered steeplechase for decades, uh, horrible act of vandalism. And then he didn't even build anything on the site. It, it, as you say, it was evil and intentional, unlike roller coasters or um, other clabbered historic buildings that you know went back as early as. The 1880s, of course, wooden buildings rot, deteriorate, yeah. and burn. But that pavilion of fun could easily have lasted, maintained or not, for another century, just steel and glass. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's And as you say, Dick, it's like always this sort of grandiosity that would undermine what could have been really good practical plans. You know, it's, we're going to bring in casinos. We're going to have another Disney world out here. You know, <laughs> absurd ideas for what Coney is and was. And uh, instead, what we what we got was what Larry so beautifully captured. Yeah, Kevin, what strikes you most about what Larry captured in his photos? Oh, it's it's amazing. It's it's that moment in time, plus uh, the kind of transition. You know, seeing the the old murals from what these places were, uh, you know, parts of other decades just kind of peek out. And uh, that's, that's just, you know, wonderfully done. And it's and his, his photos are very human, too. They always, you know, they don't just stress the ruins. They're really about the people who are there, which I think he captures, be- who he ca- I think he captures beautifully. And what's your bond to Coney Island, Kevin? Oh, I, I wrote a book called, a historical novel called Dreamland set around uh, Coney Island and the Triangle uh, Factory fire. And the Triangle fire and uh, Dreamland both, you know, burned within like two months of each other. And they're both kind of transitional moments in New York and America. You know, it was the kind of beginning of the end of the old golden age, the original golden age of Coney, uh, although it went on to become much more of a mass entertainment place after this. Uh, but it was this kind of beautiful, you know, these were the first real amusement parks ever, Dreamland and Steeplechase and Luna Park, uh, just beautiful, otherworldly, uh, very hard, very dangerous places in some ways, but amazing 
sort of th sort of thing. And this is where the working class, you know, and the middle class went out for entertainment. Um, and it was just such a uh, such a moment when that went. So there were three parks in its early days. How many were left in the 70s when Larry was out there with his camera? None. None. They were all gone. Uh, the last steeplechase uh, was gone by the mid-60s. Um, however, Astroland and Dino's Wonderwheel Park and the New York Aquarium held up the eastern side of Coney Island, but once steeplechase um, over by the parachute jump um, was gone. Then you saw shrinkage um, year by year, block by block um, from the parachute jump, pulling back all the way to Stillwell Avenue where Nathan's is to the point where before the re-imaging, rezoning and rebuilding uh, that's emerging now, um, you know, Coney Island had been reduced to just three blocks wide. Dick, you referred to the 1970s and 80s in Coney Island as Wild West Funky Town. <laughs> yeah, um, because it was beautiful. It was amazing. Um, I cherish those memories the way Larry treasures his photographs from those period because we lived through it and came out fine. Not everybody did. Um, it's not something to glorify um, in general beyond Coney Island. The 1970s were very difficult years for New York City in particular. Um, the South Bronx, the Lower East Side, Coney Island, to uh, talk about three specific neighborhoods all burned in the 70s. And, you know, the city had basically abandoned them. Um, we've built a different New York. It's partially the billionaire mayor. Uh, um, I'm blanking on our mayor. Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Um, and then opposed to the, uh, the billionaire, de Blasio's basically left-wing, more humane society. We've built a little bit of each at Coney Island. We're building condos for gentrification. And yet at the same time, there's better um, services in the neighborhood and a resurgent amusement park. It's always a mixed bag. But at that time, a Wild West funky town um, <laughs> was a reality, but it wasn't intentional and nobody uh, from the city to the owners ever intended it to happen. Um, it did happen. And then, but Larry is always there. He caught that. Mm. But then, you know, I'm reminded by these photographs that wonderful things I had the privilege of creating, like the Mermaid Parade, yeah. which had become mass culture created by an artist. But didn't start out the first year. There were more people in the parade than watching the parade, as Larry <laughs> says in the book. Look at that. It's on the boardwalk. There's no barricades and there's no people. And yet it's the mermaid parade. And and I think Dick was really the best thing that happened to the, at least to the post-war Coney in the sense of 
bringing it, you know, seeing what could be done on a human scale. You know, there's this huge failure of imagination on the part of government and of business, you know. Uh, I mean, you're at seaside, damn it. Where were all the great capitalists we're supposed to have? Uh, but Dick took out and said, like, you know, okay, what can we do on this human scale? Dick, how did Coney Island, USA come about? It was a personal choice in the late 70s. I first came to Coney Island um, when I moved to New York City and rented a loft directly across the street from Astroland, pretty much near um, where the B&B carousel had originally uh, been located. Um, the building burned down, so I had my taste of Coney Island. I had the sand in my shoes, but I didn't have um, this wonderful loft. In fact, I didn't have any footing at all. I got a studio apartment in Manhattan and Soho. So without a building, um, my test case for an arts event was um, borrowing Lily's World in Wax Museum and doing a 12-hour one-day show there uh, when that succeeded and I wanted to build upon that again. There was no building, so um, invented an art parade. Once the Mermaid Parade happened, um, there were opportunities for funding. Um, there was even an opportunity in 1984, I got hired by the Coney Island Chamber of Commerce to do the public relations. So for the old guard of Coney Island to go from the late 70s advocating for casinos to hiring me in 1984, that was quite a leap for them. <laughs> and when did you found the Coney Island Circus Sideshow? Once we had a building in 1985, opened uh, knowing very confidently that what people wanted was a art center in Coney Island with world music and jazz and performance art and poetry slams. And when nobody showed up and we were on the verge of going bankrupt, um, oddly enough, it took me an entire season, Labor Day at the end of 1985 to do a sideshow in a venue that had called itself Sideshows by the Seashore. That's how naive and dumb I was in some ways. Uh, but audiences in Coney Island were open to people's theater, but they um, like sideshows, they like drag performances. Um, and I had to put aside my fancy education and retool and do some learning myself. Larry, as Dick pointed out, you captured the early days of the Mermaid Parade. What were you looking to capture back then with your camera? Well, I, you know, basically a friend of mine, I heard about the Mermaid Parade, and at first I, I wasn't that interested. I had so many other things I was working on. And then a friend of mine at HPD said, you know, they have, you can go there and see the staging area. When they, when they people build their floats and get dressed. And that immediately appealed to me. So the first year I went was 1992. And I, I, I was, it was just so fascinating. I, I saw this one woman walking around who's it's in the book, she's an angel. She has these wings. 
and I followed her. She was part of the Botticelli Birth of Venus float and was on a little platform and got pulled by a little wagon. And then there were these different, like from pirates to like from you know, sexy, degenerate things to very, it was a family thing. There was a guy, the Coney Island Whitefish Society. And every year it got a little bigger, a little bigger, a little wilder. And it was like two trains running. There was the family funny thing. And there was a Manhattan. And there was, so I got more people, in my opinion, from Manhattan got a little weirder. So there's one, one of my favorites that I, I've had, the, I had a show of this work. I have, a, I did a, a, a posted book in public library, a personal history of the mermaid parade, which is, I didn't want the mermaid parade to overwhelm the book. I wanted it to be a small part of the book. So I have hundreds of pictures of the mermaid parade in and of itself. And um, there was a woman in a, in a kind of a skimpy lingerie and a guy in chains and they were walking, he was walking bent over and she was whipping him for the length of the parade. And then you see a family all dressed like as Easter bunnies or something. And they write <laughs> themes every year. And one of my favorite ones, it's not in the book, was a, a guy came as the captain from the Exxon Valdez. And he built like half of a boat. And he was wearing like a strap on his shoulder. And he was walking, drinking beer, and there was like dead fish on the boat and oil and oil slick. And so, so the floats are political, they're they're personal, they're kind of outrageous. It's just fascinating. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. And after a while, it got to be so popular, you couldn't get across Surf Avenue. I get there really early. And then, unbeknownst to me, there was a part when they came down to the beach and did the, the the uh, part where there are four seasons, the dick cuts a ribbon for each one ends in summer and, and then they go in the water. And there's a picture of him stirring the water with this high school shop class thermometer. And they've had an African uh, ritual of putting fruit in the water for the middle passage, I think. And it's gotten bigger and it's all inclusive. If you have something to add, I think Cornell USA is open to having it added. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Dick, did you ever expect that the Mermaid Parade would get as big as it has gotten? Yes. Um, So in college, um, one of my teachers was Ralph Lee, um, uh, who created the original um, Halloween Village Parade when it was in small streets with the giant puppets. Um, When I was in college up in Vermont, I was also influenced by the Bread and Puppet Theater with their giant puppets, which they would bring to many small parades in Vermont. And I learned that Peter Schumann, uh, when he was in New York City before moving to Vermont, the Bread and Puppet Theater was based in Coney Island for a year. Then on top of that, um, a good friend of mine who was a classmate again in college um, from Pasadena told me about the Doodah Parade, which was created in the 70s. And although the Mermaid Parade is eclipsed in size, the Doodah Parade, uh, which still occasionally happens in Pasadena, Um, was the original art parade, and that was an influence. And, uh, you know, I had, before coming to Coney Island after college, did three years of graduate work at Yale School of Drama, uh, very determined not to conquer 
so much off off Broadway, but put my theories of uh, theater in the street or theater in unusual places or theater. Coney Island is theater into practice and either fail trying or get somewhere. It's so far I'm still going. <laughs> yeah, it, it really it really goes way back to kind of the carnival idea, you know, and there were I remember in the town I grew up in, a little town in Massachusetts, they always had this kind of what was called the horribles parade on the 4th mm-hmm. of July. And the same people who had been marching very solemnly in the Memorial Day parade, honoring the dead and the veterans and, you know, all dressed up in the band. They put on like the most outrageous costumes they could on the 4th of July and marched uh, to a uh, uh, to a beach where they burned a uh, they burned a bonfire topped by one of the town's remaining outhouses. So it's this kind of like, you know, kind of kind of old, old idea, which came, you know, straight from from Europe and all of uh, of like the transgressive thing. Yeah, Dick. Some of the research I had done at that time, uh, because Atlantic City transformed first. Yeah. Um, a woman and author, Vicki Gold Levy, um, mm-hmm. whose father had been the um photographer for the Atlantic City Chamber of Commerce uh, wrote a book about uh, the history of Coney Island. Mm-hmm. And there were amazing photographs from her father or her father's archive of uh, Atlantic City photographers before him. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the Miss America contest that evolved out of uh, a Miss America parade in rolling chairs on the boardwalk and um, some of the officials of the parade committee would dress up as King Neptune. And I would look at these cheesecake press photos and try and imagine (laughs) in my educated head. So when the photographer took that picture, what were these costume characters saying? What mm-hmm. was the ceremony? There's no documentation, which I prefer because I want to make it up my own way anyway. Yeah. But, you know, those were the kind of influences like um, Mardi Gras and influence and uh, the wonderful Mummers Parade in Philadelphia, which is the oldest parade tradition in the United States of America. It's a colonial tradition in Philadelphia. And that's the thing though, Coney Island was always transgressive, you know, even back in the old days, it was, it's always been trying to be respectable and then becoming transgressive in the, even with these beautiful old parks, you had a lot of the rides were made to like throw men and women together uh, in rather rough ways. And you had things like, the park benches were electrified. So they didn't feel you were getting up and spending money fast enough. They'd give you a little zats, you know, <laughs> get, to get you get you going. I'm surprised <laughs> every high turnover restaurant in the country doesn't have that. <laughs> it, was, it was like a, a tort lawyer's dream today, but it's a constant, you know. Um, oh and, my God, the blowhole theater with electric yes. prods and women's dresses. 
uh, being blown up while a little person is running around the, with a slapstick. I mean, yeah, talking about person. politically incorrect, there's like three off the top there. Yeah, a, a little person dressed as a harlequin with a cattle prod would go and hit you. And and then and you went and after you went through this, you went and sat in the uh, what is it, the laughing gallery and 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 laughed at your fellow New Yorkers getting this. So it was it was it was always kind of out of hand and people are always trying to bring it in and make it respectable, but somehow that never worked, which is a good thing. Yeah. And the other thing is I can't tell you how excellent Kevin's book is a dreamland. I read it and never forgot it. And a few years ago, I was at an opening for this basketball show. I had some work in, I did my basketball book and Sarah Henry of MCNY introduced me to Kevin. And I said, I can't believe it. I'm meeting one of my favorite writers in person. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. And That's then great. when I had the idea, then we, we, I've been a friend of Coney Island, even though at first Dick didn't think I was a friend. And there was a, uh, a benefit for Coney Island. And you had to do a little thing. I did a little short movie and Kevin spoke. And when I, heard, when I saw Kevin, I said, oh, my God, Kevin likes Coney Island. Maybe he'd be interested in writing something about these photographs. So in my mind, I had a little smaller book that was a dummy I made much less inexpensively with no editing, no essays. And I said, I really want to turn this into a real book. And I asked Kevin and I asked Dick and they both said yes. Yeah. And now we had, and I got a good designer to actually do the book. And the whole thing is, I think it's really beautiful. It's one of the best things I've ever done. And, uh, but you can't go wrong with Kevin's writing. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I'm a big fan it's, of Dreamline um, myself. Well, thanks so much. And it's, it's a delightful book. It's really the, uh, Larry's book is just really amazing and amazingly. Well, they really brought out the color very well, as well as the black and white photos. Yeah, speaking of that, Kevin, Larry, your early photographs of Coney Island were in black and white, but you returned to photograph in color. What inspired that for you? Just the you know, changing times. I was doing black and white for years. A lot of photographers my age in the 70s, you saw it with black and white because it was A, cheaper, and B, accessible. You could actually process the film yourself at home with a little tank that held the chemicals, and you could handle it. And you didn't need the, the controls that you needed for color. So color, if you had had your chemicals, you measure the thermometer 70 degrees versus 68. If it's 70 degrees, you can leave it in to develop a little less. If color, you don't have it within a quarter of a degree, you go from orange to red. So for a lot of people, color was out of the question. So you saw it with black and white, it was accessible. And as I went on, got better as a photographer, bought a more equipment, worked commercially, Color was really the real world. I started shooting more color. And then I heard about this. this I like one or two photographers that use this old camera called the 617 that had a 6-inch by 17-inch negative. It was made with a Kodak circuit camera. The negative was that being going to make contact prints. And then I read that Fuji made a camera that took two film and it had a negative of three proportion. And I rented it and I fell in love with it. In those Coney Island photographs, I took the first weekend I rented the camera and I got the results. And from then on, it was like how I wanted to photograph. And I found a lab where I can print in color. I learned, I learned how to print in color. And it was, I still print black and white. I shoot both, but, but certain things I still prefer color, certain things I still prefer black and white. So I, I'm just always like both. Like you, you don't really have to choose between the two. But at the time in the 70s, it was just what I had. I had one simple camera, no flash, nothing. Of course, a lot of people still flock to Coney Island to ride the roller coaster, the cyclone roller coaster. But there are roller coasters that don't exist anymore. Larry, you capture the demise of the tornado and the thunderbolt in this book and your I photographs. Know. 
That's really kind of sad. The, the tornado was amazing because I was I was there photographing, and I just looked down the block and I thought I walked down there and it was, I got some very graphic photographs. So I'm standing right under it, and sometimes I get carried away because I'm so excited to photograph. They were actually cutting the steel above my head. They were working. The welders were there. I right. went under there. I was looking around, taking pictures, different angles. I got some really strong photographs there, and I went back several times, and I was. Um, I was in, I had the time to come back and wear a tripod. And that's when people literally say to me, they, they assumed the camera on a tripod was, was a, a surveyor's tripod. And they'd actually come up to me several times a day and say, so when the casino is coming, hmm. and I say, no, I'm just taking pictures, but it, it, it was really uh, awesome. It was funny. Yeah. While they did tear down some things, they built some good things. So that's yeah. a yeah. huge change for New York City's attitude. Yes. Yeah, Dick, I yeah. wanted to ask you, as someone considered the unofficial mayor of Coney Island, how would you describe the state of Coney Island today? Coney Island is in viable shape for the next 50 years. Mm. Um, with the current build-out, it'll probably be finished at the end of next year, the final expansions of Luna Park. Um, there will be more ride area, um, not that not historically compared to when there was Steeplechase Luna Park and Dreamland, but Coney Island will be as big as it's been since the 1950s. You know, uh, much better shape than it certainly looks like in Larry's book. Well, this book is Coney Island Baby. Larry, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you, George. Dick, Kevin, thank you for joining. Thank you, George. Big thanks to photographer Larry Rassiopo, writer, historian, and journalist Kevin Baker, and Dick Ziggin, founder of Coney Island USA. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarkey. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>